I'm glad I'm here because I want to talk to you for a few minutes about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. I don't believe you can get too much of Jesus. I don't believe we can get too much insight into who he was and what he did. I don't believe we can ever adequately understand him. We can never get too much of his spirit. Which is, I, pers I personally believe, for me at least, that at least 50% of my Bible reading should be in the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Possibly 30% in Acts and the Epistles, and 20% in the Old Testament. For without Jesus, there is no message. Without Jesus, there is no meaning to history and no hope for the future. Without Jesus, the Old Testament is history and unfulfilled prophecy. And the New Testament epistles without Jesus is a form of religion that is meaningless and helpless to save your soul. We can know the Old Testament and believe it. We can know the New Testament epistles and believe them. But we are not saved by belief in those writings we're not saved by that book. We're saved by the man. Christianity is Christ. It's not a church. It's not a theology. It's not a religion. Christianity is a man. And the theme of this message this morning that I will hopefully endeavor to remind us of every now and then is the one thing we need to give up to become a Christian is religion. The one thing we need to give up to become a Christian is religion. Religion gets in the way of Christianity. Jesus did not come to establish a religion. He came to establish a relationship, a family, a body. In all the religions of the world, men are trying to find a way to get to God. Trying to find a way to get God's approval. To get God on your side. To get him to put down some credits opposite those debits. Religion is a fruitless test to self-justification and redemption. Therefore, Christianity in Christ is not a religion. For in Christianity, we are not trying to get to God. God has come to us in person, in Jesus Christ. And we are saved by a personal relationship with him. I don't know anything that, well, there are probably many things, but this is one of the many things that needs to be emphasized in America today. 
But to be an American doesn't make you a Christian. Even though America has many Christian influences and has had many Christian principles inculcated in, its, in our life. But you can be an American and not be a Christian. When you are born in America, that does not automatically make you a member of the Christian faith. As in England, when you were born into British society, you are born as a citizen of the kingdom of, of Great Britain, but you're also born into the established church. Physical birth and spiritual birth are synonymous, not in the New Testament. I thank God for the religious influences that we have had wherever they have come from. And everybody that has done this has meant well. The important thing is that these influences, this religious activity, these, these creeds are all intended not to be ends within themselves, but they are to be means to lead us into a personal relationship with a living person, Jesus Christ, and that is Christianity. You read the New Testament in the, just the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In those four Gospels, you will read the name Jesus over 500 times. Not Jesus Christ, you'll read that, but I'm talking about Jesus, the name, standing alone. Not Master, not Teacher, not Rabbi, not Lord, Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. In the New Testament, all of the New Testament, you will read the name Jesus standing alone 905 times. Jesus is the centerpiece of the faith, the man. I want to say a little about him. And then say a word or two about some of the people's lives he touched. Uh, Jesus was a very gregarious person. People liked him. At least ordinary folks liked him. The religious crowd didn't go for him. Uh, they, they didn't then and they don't now. Uh, these folks who were more concerned about crossing T's and dotting I's very ritualistic, legalistic, fundamentalist kind of attitude. Reminds me of Robert Frost who said, you don't go on a tennis court to measure the lines. You go on a tennis court to play tennis. Well, we're not here to measure the lines. We're here to have a relationship, a game, a life, a fellowship with this man, Jesus Christ. Went to parties. Eight different times he went to parties. Three of them were with friends. Cana of Galilee, Mary and Martha, and with two on the road to Emmaus. Five other parties were with people who were socially discredited. And Jesus going there was an affront to respectable religious society in his day with uh, sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and empty-hearted religious leaders who were looking and hoping for something more went to parties. 
want to say a word about Jesus and his relationship to women. In every synagogue service, the rabbi would pray, Thank you, O God, for your mercy in not making me a woman. Every service. Sitting there, segregated, were the women. They were not allowed to worship with the men. They heard that prayer. Some of you, many of you have been to Israel with us and been to the Western Wall where we go to pray and where thousands, millions of Jews go to pray. Very significant, historic, meaningful spot. But when you go there to pray, the men go to one side and there is a fence, a barrier, where the women pray over here in a smaller area and the men and men only can pray over here. That's the way it was in Jesus' day. Women were not taught the Torah. The law. First five books of the, of the Old Testament. They were untaught, unsegregated, and looked upon as property. If you read your Bible, particularly in the, Old, in the Old Testament, you will hear when they are counting a man's valuables and his possessions, they will list his land, his houses, his cattle, and his wives. Property. That's what women were. Property. They were not allowed to talk to anyone outside of the home unless somebody in the family was with them. They were never allowed to touch a man other than their husband. Now watch Jesus. Watch him associate himself with women. The woman at the well had been married five times and was now living with a man she wasn't married to. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? And they talked together and visited together and her whole life was changed. And she became the first evangelist in the New Testament, went back and told everybody in that Samaritan town that Jesus had saved her and changed her life, and the whole community was converted because of this scarred woman. Now, you think that didn't raise a bunch of eyebrows among the religious leaders of the day? The first person to declare the resurrection, following his resurrection, the first person that Jesus met and said, go tell the disciples that I have been raised and I will meet them in Galilee, was a prostitute, converted Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven devils. Women were a part of the disciple group. Women traveled along with Jesus and the disciples. Openly. Now, can't you imagine all of the orthodox eyebrows that were raised over that incident? They accused him of being a friend of harlots. Well, he was a friend of harlots, but they were implying by that accusation something much more. Women never denied him. 
No woman ever denied him. No woman ever betrayed him. They were first at the cradle and last at the cross. Every woman in the world, even if she doesn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, ought to stand to her feet and applaud this man. He's a friend of everybody. I remember when our church a few years ago was going through that year-long discussion and study and prayer time about whether to ordain women deacons in the life of the church. We made it very lengthy and thorough and out of a long time of thought and prayer, we came to the conclusion that we believe God would have us ordain women. We have now for a number of years. And... Uh, I'll never forget, during that year, we were in our home one day, and Martha and I were talking about it, and our daughter Lisa dropped by, and she said, uh, what are you all discussing? We said, well, we're talking about what's going on in church, about the role of women in the church, and the role of women in the Bible, and whether ordained women or not. And um, Lisa, in her succinct way, thought about it for a moment and said, Well, I don't know why if a woman could give birth to the Son of God, why can't she pass a collection plate in the church? <laughs> well, we didn't need that year of discussion. That pretty much settled the issue as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Well, Jesus was severely criticized for that, raised a lot of suspicious doubts about it. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book on Jesus, tells about a friend of his who was working in the inner city mission in Chicago, and a woman came in who was just devastated. She was just coming apart in every area of her life. She was a prostitute, and she talked about it to this man and said, I have just ruined my life. I'm going to hell. This, this, everything about me is wrong. I'm so miserable. I don't know what to do. She said, not only have I sold my own body, but I've sold the body of my young daughter for kinky sex to sick men to get money to support my drug habit. And she said, I don't think there's any hope for me at all. It's just so bad, so terrible. And this man looked at her and said, have you ever gone to a church for help? And her face tightened up and she said, church? Church? Every time I have ever gone to church, they made me feel worse than I already did. No! I'll not go to church. What an indictment on the body of Christ professing to embody his spirit and to represent his inclusive love. What an indictment. My friend, let me say to you here today, 
in all likelihood, you're not in as desperate straits as was this woman in Chicago. But let me tell you, you are home here. You are welcome here. You are here to be loved and to be redeemed and to have your life changed and have people pray for you and encourage you and help you. We're on your side. And when the day comes that this church doesn't do that, then you can write Ichabod over the front door of this congregation for the glory of God will have departed. Whosoever will, he said, may come. And the day the church says anything less, it betrays its Lord. had a woman come to me some time ago, and she said, uh, Bugner, I know you're going to tell me I'm going to hell. I said, well, I don't, I don't plan to do that, but let's, let's talk. Why do you think I'm going to tell you that you're going to hell? She said, I'm all messed up sexually. She said, I can't figure out whether I'm heterosexual or lesbian. I, I'm bisexual now. I've had affairs with men. I'm now involved in a lesbian relationship. And she said, I'm miserable. I'm so terribly upset and frustrated with myself. I don't know who I am. And I know you're going to tell me I'm going to hell. I said, you're not going to hell. You're already in hell. Hell's already tearing up your heart and your life. Jesus has come to save you from the hell of the present and of the future. He's come to forgive you and to give you strength and to give you direction to give you help. No, you're not going to hell. You trust the Lord, you're going to go to heaven, and you begin to get a taste of it here even before you get there. Just trust him. She did. Took a few months, but even a year or two of counseling here at our church. And the day came when she walked down this aisle. I performed her marriage ceremony, married, has children, actively involved now in the cause of Christ. Whosoever will may come. There are no impossible cases with Jesus. None. You may give up on yourself. Even your friends may give up on you. But Jesus will never give up on you. Never. Look in the Bible. There's some stories there. I don't have time to spend much time on them. But one marvelous story in the seventh chapter of the book of Luke. This woman who was a prostitute. was Jesus was having dinner in this Pharisee's house. Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus went. A few of his disciples went along with him. And this Pharisee had some of his uh, Pharisaical friends along uh, there. And Jesus came in. They didn't even extend the common courtesies to him. But while he was there having dinner in this uh, sumptuous home, uh, a woman uh, who was uh, a sinner in the city came in 
And she walked around the outer circle, came down, and, and began to cry. Standing there at Jesus' feet, she began to cry. And then she kneeled down, and she started to kiss Jesus' feet, and then to wipe his feet with the hairs of her head, wipe the tears, kiss the feet, and then poured perfume on them. You see, a woman wasn't supposed to touch a man. And you think it was silent in that room? I mean, nobody took a breath. And Pharisee, fundamentalist Pharisee, said, well, he knew what kind of woman that was that was touching him. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. She's a sinner. And Jesus said, Simon, let me talk to you. You, you know, you weren't even courteous to me, but that's okay. That doesn't make any difference. But this woman has come here. Let me tell you, her sins, which are many, he didn't minimize them at all. He didn't gloss over them. He didn't say they're insignificant. They don't count. She's got a lot of them. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. It says, have been forgiven. They were forgiven even before she got there. They had been forgiven by the love and the grace of God. And what happened when she got there was by her, <coughs> excuse me, by her actions, she accepted that forgiveness. She didn't acquire it. She assimilated it. She accept, accepted it. Her sins have been forgiven. Listen to me, my dear friend today, whatever it is in your life, maybe not anything like this woman's life in the book of Luke, or the woman in Chicago, or the woman in my office, whoever you are, man or woman, listen, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can't tell you that. I can't forgive you of your sins. No priest can, no pope can, no religious system can. Only somebody who's got nail prints in their hands can forgive you, and he's done it. Your sins are forgiven. Accept that. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You walk out of here today with a peace that passes all understanding. Not because of Buckner or because of anything I've sung or this beautiful music and ballet and message and song. All of that is just pointing people to Jesus 500 times, 905 times, 10 million times. And if we had a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise, it would be the Lord Jesus who saves us and forgives us. Bartimaeus, a blind man sitting beside the road in Jericho, couldn't see. He was so insignificant. He didn't even have a first name. They just called him Blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. That's the Hebrew for son of Timaeus. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Bar mitzvah. This was blind Bar Timaeus. So insignificant that he didn't even have a given name. Blind. And the, the religious leaders of that day considered that anybody with an infirmity of any kind was naturally a sinner. Lepers were sinners. Blind people were sinners. Everybody was a sinner that didn't agree with them. That sound familiar? 
Everybody's a sinner that doesn't agree with us on every issue, on everything, on every point of doctrine, every T, every dotted I. Sinner. Well, this, this old boy, he was desperate. And Jesus came walking along and no doubt he heard the name of Jesus in this crowd that was following Jesus. Great crowd of people. And he said, he heard the name Jesus. Jesus. And he, he realized, Jesus, hey, that's the guy that helps people. It's worth a try. And so he cried out. Read about it in the 10th chapter of Mark. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, this pious crowd said, shut up, be quiet, don't do that. Don't talk to him. You're going to get our community a bad reputation. But he, he was desperate. He just cried that much more. Jesus! Have mercy on me. And I think one of the most magnificent statements in all the Bible is this one. It says, Jesus, stop. Jesus, stop. He who set these worlds in motion, he from whose fingertips dripped the cosmos, he from whose hands made the earth, made us. He the author of creation, the instigator and giver of life, the alpha and the omega, stopped. When he heard a nameless, blind beggar call his name. And he said, bring him to me. And the man came and Jesus said, what can I do for you? He said, I want to see. Man, I want to see. Jesus said, it's done. Your faith is saved. Go in peace. And the man followed Jesus. Now, you may be sitting beside the road of life thinking everybody else is having all the fun and you're sitting there just in the dust. Don't have any vision for your future, any hope for tomorrow. Just call upon him. He said, call upon me and I will answer you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He'll help you get up and leave the side of the road, dust the clothes, dust off your clothes, the blindness off your eyes, and you'll walk in a whole new way following him. It's going to happen. It's going to happen right here today. And then one last man, a very moral man, religious man, educated man, leader, among the religionists of Jesus' day, his name Nicodemus, a very successful man, came to Jesus at night, and I believe they sat on the side of the Mount of Olives, and they talked. Nicodemus was a very intellectual man, and he and Jesus talked, and Nicodemus said, I, I know you're a good teacher. You couldn't do all that you're doing if God was not with you. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need a new spirit, sir. You need to be born again. 
Now that word has been used so often that it's lost its magnificent meaning. What do you mean born again? But Jesus was saying, Nicodemus said, does that mean I have to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Now he knew that Jesus was not speaking literally. He knew that Jesus was using a metaphor, a parable, that, that uh, he was just carrying on the conversation in the vein in which Jesus had launched it. He said, uh, can I go back in my mother's womb and start all over again? Well, in so many words, Jesus said, no, 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 no. No one can go back and have a new beginning. But everybody can begin now and have a new ending. No one can go back and begin again and have a new beginning. But every one of us can begin right now and have a new tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Sure, you need to be born of the water, and said Jesus. And you need to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of water is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Why it's wonderful to be born in America, but America is not the kingdom of God. America is not the new Israel. The churches, those who have put their faith and trust in the living Christ, in Jesus. Born of the water and the Spirit. And they that are born of the Spirit see life. The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Nicodemus, the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes, but you can hear the sound of it. Not because I'm a preacher or because I've preached, and it's not because of Buckner Fanning, it's because of the promise in the Word of God and from the lips of Jesus that whenever we talk about Him and lift Him up, His Spirit comes. Now don't be afraid of that statement. It comes like a fresh breeze. And it will cool the fevered brow of guilt. That breath of life will refresh your spirit. Gentle, cooling, healing, refreshing. Listen to the wind. Nicodemus. Listen to the wind. What you feel moving across your spirit right now is not a sermon. It is not a preacher. It is not some sad story that's been told. It's the spirit of the loving God. Not the Holy Ghost. That sounds so frightening and mysterious. Change that name. The holy guest of God. He wants to be the guest in your life. To make you holy and whole and happy and a new person. Nicodemus grew silent. And then the most magnificent words ever spoken came from the lips of Jesus. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Harlot, beggar, moral man, whoever you are, the invitation is from a loving Christ. Hundreds of times, the invitation is from Jesus. Let me ask you one closing question. If he were to walk in that door over there, like you've always pictured him, however you have pictured him, if he walked into this room with those eyes that are the home of all men's souls, and he looked at you, you, and you, would you follow me? I'll forgive you. I'll give you my power, my peace, my presence. And I'll guarantee you an eternity in heaven and the joy of the Lord in the presence. Wouldn't you come? Maybe you want to join some other congregation. That's fine. We're not talking about that. We're talking about following this man. If you feel he's calling you to be a part of a church that's trying to lift him up, which he said, if we do, he will draw all men unto him. Is he drawing you? Listen to the wind and come. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand.